Hey, hi, thank you for being here. Hi, uh, it is Jake, and welcome to Praise Dionysus. Praise him. Uh, so this is so this episode is the last in our series of conversations with artists who participated in the Melbourne Fringe Festival of 2023. Uh, our guest for this episode is Gemma Caruana, who is a wonderfully talented, intelligent, remarkable performer person uh, who is a writer and a cabaret artist and a theatre maker and an actor and a musical theatre performer and and so many other things, of course. <laughs> uh, and you may have experienced her work in uh, Sevenfold Theatre Company's production of Spring Awakening, where she she was an actor in that, which we talked about on the podcast. You may have experienced her sort of like, her, her sort of like first big cabaret work called Underwire, which we also talked about here. Uh, or you may have very recently seen her performing in the Melbourne Fringe Festival in the world premiere of her most recent work, Galar Galar, which we're going to spend, I imagine, a bulk of this conversation talking about. So yeah, super excited for her to get here, super excited to get to speak with her, with you here. Um, yeah, it's going to be really lovely. So again, thank you for spending this time with us. Uh, yeah, and and yeah, Gemma will be here in just a second. Gemma Caruana. Yes. Hey. Hi. <laughs> oh, it's so nice to have you here. How are you? I'm pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. That How was a nice you, six love? out of ten. I'm super fine. It wasn't exactly just six out of ten. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything I can do to jack that number up? No, a little? it smells delicious in here. It's really improved. It's bumping it up to a seven. Oh, good. <laughs> Candles lit. It's gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> um. So you are the final of the post fringe conversations oh, that I'm yes. having with people. Gorgeous. Yeah. So um. So, so let's just immediately. Jump into Galar Galar. Please. Your show. How did it go and what was it? Great question. It was <laughs> great. We had five shows at the at Trace Hall, um, which was super fun, in the old council chambers, which is that one heritage listed room where you can't have any liquids or anything. Wait, there's only one room? One room in Trades Hall where it's, um, oh, this is the first thing I talk about, <laughs> unpacking the... <laughs> Give me a bit of logistics. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah is, is so heritage listed. It's beautiful. It's like lots of like little pews. It's like kind of in the round. But, um, but yes, had to like fight to have water in there. <laughs> like Ugh. it was like, it's that heritage listed. Oh my God. Um, but it was gorgeous. It's such a stunning room. Um, yeah, so Galar Galar, this was the premiere season. Um, slash test season of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, brand new comedy cabaret. It's my second show. Um, first time writing my own music with Connor Conk. Yeah. Gariol, as I'm sure the listeners are very familiar with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, it was just a lot of fun. The audiences were so warm and beautiful. Um, yeah, it was... I'll tell you about the show. Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, yeah, please. We didn't get to see each other's shows. No, no. Because we suck. But also, yeah. No, my God, the heartbreak of this festival was just, like, watching these things fly by and being like, oh, gonna miss that, gonna miss that, gonna miss that. It's quite impossible. And you always set your sights so high pre-festival. Yes. I had a list. I had, like, it all organised and then, yeah. Yeah, no, and you think you'll have this magical amount of energy you've never had in your life. (laughs) Yes. I'm going to bed. Um, But, yeah, so... Why is it called Galar Galar, you ask? Great question. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I'll just interview myself. Um, so it's called Galar Galar because that was my nickname when I was little, bestowed up to me, upon me, by my immigrant grandfather um, because I was very loud. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't really like an insult. I think it was loving. 
But um, all the other cousins got nicknames too. I was I was like the youngest of like twelve or something. Yeah. And um, with my little sister, and everyone else was like Luca, Rebecca, like very you know. Oh, just like a cute version of their name. Yeah, and then I was Galagala. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that's saying something, I guess, being the noisiest little one of the bunch. Um, so yeah, it sort of explores like my growing up as this like unapologetic noise machine who was just into everything all the time. And then as like puberty struck, becoming this very like obsessive eldest sister, perfectionist, high achiever gal. Mm. And then the, of course, mental health and anxiety that came with that. Yeah. And how little girls kind of shrink at a certain age. I've witnessed this with like young girls when they hit that like eight to 12 mark when they're, yeah, I don't want to use the word blooming, but you know, like when, when we're sort of maturing, I guess, suddenly you become like aware of yourself in the world and how much space you're taking up. Yeah. And it, it becomes very internal. Um, I promised the show was funny. <laughs> I think. Um, but yeah, so that's sort of the, the, the crux of it, I guess. And then it was just like jam-packed with anecdotes and silly songs mm. and coming through the most dramatic moments of my childhood. Um, yeah, God, that's the vibe of the show. That's beautiful. All that is fascinating <laughs> material. I can see, yeah. But what, what was it about this, you thinking about, like, how did you get to that point in reflecting upon your life and be like, oh, this interesting blooming, shrinking mm. juncture would make an interesting show? Honestly, oh, genuinely, like, I was in Adelaide, which is where I'm from, um, doing Underwire, which was my first show. And it was the second run of Underwire. I was doing it at Adelaide Fringe earlier this year. And on one particular night, all three of my music teachers in my life came. It wasn't organised. It was just <laughs> the singing teacher I had in uni came. My high school drama teacher, who's, like, very, very important to me, came. And my primary school music teacher, who, like, taught me clarinet and choir, oh who God. I haven't seen in, like, over a decade easily, yeah. all came on the same night, weirdly. Oh. And, um... And it was kind of this, like, magical thing of, like, I spoke to my high school teacher and she was like, you're so different, but you're, you're exactly what I thought you were going to be. Oh. And, but you're, you're so different and you're, you're so much more, like, you know, bloomed, I guess, and, like, and, like, confident in yourself. And I was like, wow, thanks, miss. I'm going to go chat. <laughs> Thank you. I love you. I'm going to go chat to this other teacher. Mm. And I went and spoke to my primary school teacher and who I haven't, like I said, I haven't seen over a decade. And she was like, you're exactly how I remember you. And, like, it was, to me, like, it, it stuck out because um, I was just like, okay, this woman who knew me, like, pre-puberty, young, loud, like, that version of me mm. was saw that reflected on stage. She's like, now that I've come full circle and I'm 22 years old, like, she's seeing that. And she's like, that's the girl I remember. Mm. And my high school teacher who saw me in this pubescent, you know, fucking high school era of, mm. like, navigating that bullshit where I remember being watching my words and being very people-pleasy and making sure I didn't upset anyone and not being a big risk-taker was, like, you're so different, but I, like, knew you were going to get here. Oh, my goodness. I know that's very complex, yeah. but, it, but it struck me that perhaps now I was, like, I had come back to my old self. Yeah. And on top of that... I, like, cut my hair. Like, <laughs> you've only known me with this, like, curly mop on my head. Yeah. <laughs> but two years ago, and all my years prior, I had long, straight hair. Like, pretty much, hmm. throughout my adolescence and growing up. Yeah. And that was an intentional choice. If it wasn't a big risk, it was just very clear. And then I 
turned 21 and moved to Melbourne. I was like, fuck this. And I cut it all off and my curls like sprung back up. <laughs> and suddenly I, it struck me. I was like, oh my God, I look like five-year-old me. <laughs> I look like her again. And so there was this combination of like things going on. I was like, I've come back to her. I've come back to like who I was always going to be or who I was always, who I was originally. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think that came with a lot of, from a lot of like, exploration and struggle and fucking drama school and <laughs> failure and and yeah to get to the point where I am now where I could write this second show and try and unpack some of that I don't know god yeah okay. it's quite <coughs> grand isn't it it like, is grand but also yeah. such a relatable journey a lot of that really resonates with me as well I can see that being the thing yeah. I think there's something too even like inherent in like the queer experience of that type of thing of like yeah. working out who you are a little bit and then realizing that people aren't super into it or expecting them to yeah. not be into it and then pulling it back inside of you and then whether or not that gets a chance to, yeah, re-bloom totally. or whatever it is. Yeah, I do believe... I, I think I was always going to, like, become who I was meant to become. Mm. Because I've always been very, I don't know, focused like that. But, um, but I do recognise that perhaps before I got to uni, like, there were two avenues that I could have taken. Yeah. And I think, like the people that I met and the experiences that I had and, like, my partner's, like, a big part of that and my friends who are now, like, my family here, Mm. like, yeah, helped me shape and I guess got me there quicker. Like, this, like, acceptance of, like, who I actually am. And I'm still working that out. I don't have all the answers yet. Sure, yeah. (laughs) I don't think I ever will. But, um, but yeah, like, I don't know. I just, I see two versions of myself and what I, like, could have been and I'm, so glad it's this version. Oh, God, that's <laughs> nice. Sure. That's a comfort to the thought of you even wording it like that. The idea of, like, whatever you had been surrounded by, mm. it seems very likely that you would have found this person that you have become and Eventually. Will become. I don't know if it would have been, like, at this time. Right. Yeah. yeah. So would your advice to a person trying to either, like, revive an old version of themselves or find a truer version of themselves be to surround themselves with people that seem to be living in a way that's Oh, I honest? think it's so incon... Like, unconstructive to surround yourself with people who feel like make you feel like you have to change right. and I, that was very much my experience um in high school all, all growing up like but high school particularly it took me until year 11 to like leave a particular friendship group and be like this is not serving me anymore this isn't serving <laughs> anybody you're not serving each other but like that was yeah a very like toxic thing because I was trying to have it all I was trying to be in the popular group with the hotties, like, going out and, like, drinking and that, But also being a very good student and a drama nerd and nice to everybody. Like, I just didn't want to upset anybody. And mm. and I realised, yeah, like, I was probably sacrificing some of my personal, um, like, needs and authenticity to mm. be part of this group that was not serving me. Yeah. So I guess my advice, in quotation marks, would be, like, yeah, just be unapologetically be around people who make you happy. Mm. Like, because they can help you flourish. And also, I think growth comes from uncomfortability in a safe way. Mm. I never wanted to move away from home. Like, a lot of Adelaide kids are like, fuck Adelaide, there's nothing to do here. (laughs) And I was like, I'm happy in my bubble. I'm very comfortable. Like, I didn't set my sides too high. And then basically being forced to move to Ballarat because I got into this great school was like, like two months after I turned 18. Mm. It was literally like a kick out the door. Yeah, God. Um, especially being like the eldest sibling, I was like the first one to do everything, you know. So it was all new for everybody. And it wasn't comfortable. It was quite scary. Mm. <laughs> but um, with that came quite a lot of growth and independence, I think. Jesus. 
God, that's it's a, it's a bit profound, oh, hey. But, it is. but then I like sing a sh- stupid song in my show about like wanting to kill my year three music, <laughs> my year three teacher because he didn't give me an A plus on my Olympics project in, <laughs> in, in, <laughs> in two thousand and eight. So don't worry, it's it all balances out in the end. God, God, there's even something so lovely in that thought that you just put forth so wonderfully. This thing of like the thought of happiness and comfort being a really reliable lighthouse for someone mm. trying to make choices and trying to make choices that they think will lead them to a to a, like a, a healthy, beneficial, growthy spot. You know, like seeking out that comfort and happiness is a reliable, dependable way to give yourself a better chance at mm-hmm. growing into a person that you might enjoy being. Yeah, yeah. I, I recognize now that I said two contradictory things. It's like. Growth comes with uncomfortability, but also find people that make you comfortable. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, I, but I think they can go hand in hand. Like, mm. I maybe not at the same time, but like once you do the trek and and push through some uncomfortability, you might find you know a brighter horizon. Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize I was going to be so no, philosophical. No, that's beautiful. No, and and yeah. that, that discomfort you're describing is more survivable because you're surrounded by people that can see you through it. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's sort of a lot. All the the ideas, I guess, that made Galar Galar, because I just wanted to come back to, like, her. Like, like prepubescent me who was, in like, just never gave anything a second thought. And, like, mental health was a big part of this version of the show um, because there is a very distinct moment where, like, I turned 12 and nothing traumatic happened. I just, like, lost a little, like, I... I um, Something very, very minor was just like, oh, I couldn't contact my parents. And all of a sudden, anxiety entered my life. Like, for the first mm. time. Like, genuinely had my first anxiety attack. And then, since then, I've been a person with anxiety. Yeah. In very different, like, strengths, in different years and all sorts. So, um, yeah, it's like a big journey <laughs> to sort of try and encapsulate. But it, ultimately, it was a show for little me. And being trying oh. to be like, is, if it's good enough for her, then, like, isn't that enough? Like, what am I trying to yeah. do? <laughs> yeah, that's such a great answer to, like, who is your show for and who is your work for. It's for me. Fuck you. That's great. <laughs> yeah, no. Fuck, that's nice. Yeah. Um, with you talking about the desire to people-please and being a people-pleaser mm, from mm. what seems like a very young age, mm. how does that figure into the life of an artist and the work of an artist? It's hard. Yeah? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm trying to unlearn. Like, yeah, I think growing up, as I'm still growing up, is like a lot of unlearning and making new habits. But in, initially, like Underwire one, like this time last year, I guess Melbourne Fringe Underwire was my very, very first, very first anything, first show that I wrote in full, first time presenting it. It was just fresh, and I was shitting it, bitch. And I know. <laughs> what is shitting it, bitch? Shitting it, bitch. I was shitting bricks, girl. Oh, <laughs> I was. No, I was freaking out. Oh god. Okay. That's what the translation of that. Oh, okay. Um, and <laughs> sorry, like nervous about something specific, just about doing a show. Well, or I've about... recognized. I mean, obviously, there's like just show nerves and just like all the regular stuff. But um, after a year, and also after presenting another new show in almost exactly the same timeline, I've recognized that it was definitely because I was sharing my perspective unapologetically. Right. Underwire was had a very clear message about the sexualization of young people, about women's bodies and people's bo- people with breasts who and their, our experiences. Um, and I was making a statement very wholeheartedly that I believed in, but I had never really experienced getting up in front of a bunch of people and saying, this is my opinion. I've mm. 
read a script with other people's opinions in it and I've played characters, but like that I think was what was actually quite terrifying me because I was like, if I get a review or something or someone goes, I don't agree with her, like, I, I, or, you know, she's forgetting this or she's excluding that, mm. that was scaring me. Yeah. And a year on from that, I'm a lot less afraid of that idea. Right. I think, to be a bit more radical. Because of Underwire? Yeah. Yeah. And was, was it because of any real world feedback that you did receive that challenged that integrity? Well, no one's going to tell you that you're ba- your show is bad. Like, no right. good person's going to come up to you and be like, didn't like that. Don't resonate <laughs> with me. Yeah. Um, assholes on the internet world, but I'm not nearly big enough for that yet. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, fuck, I forgot your question. So, no, well, being what a people pleaser and how that engages with... Yeah. Oh, yeah, real world feedback. Um, yes. I mean, people, I got, like... You know, when you're writing a show, you get asked a hundred times when you're fucking doing grants and stuff, like, who is this for? Why? Who is your audience? Da, da, da. And I always said, like, from the beginning, like, very Lady Gaga of me, if one person, no, like, <laughs> if, you know, it's for girls like me, and this is about Underwire, who, you know, were young and struggled with their bodies, specifically, like, having large breasts at a young age and not knowing how to navigate that. Mm. And seeking, I was on online forums and like stuff like that, like desperately looking for someone for answers. Um, and when you were that a, age, when I was that age, yeah. totally. And I was just looking for someone to normalize it or de- destigmatize it or make me feel like I wasn't being dramatic. Yeah, I it was for them. And when people like that responded to it, like I had parents of these people coming up to me and saying how it affected them. I had one lady who was brought as a friend, like. A friend of the family brought a friend. So, yeah. like, that distant. She had no investment in me. <laughs> and she sent me this message being like, my daughter is going through what you're going through. I don't think she was ready to see what your show, just because of her own personal journey. Mm. But, like, thank you. And you gave my husband, like, the language to speak to my daughter about it or, like, help contextualise and understand it. Oh, my God. And, like, that, every time, like, I got a little message from that, like, that was like, oh, there's my why. Like, it was a reminder. Mm. Um... So, yes, of course that helped me be like, your perspective is valid and <laughs> worth it and stuff. But, of course, fuck validation from other people and I'm trying to unlearn that. But as a very young artist who's still blossoming, like <laughs> learning all the challenges that comes with being a young artist, um, you know, you got to learn from experience. And I think my next challenge is making something that people don't like. Yeah, which is, is that in any way what you were doing with Galagala, or is that going to be... It was a lot more self-serving, which I know is a, is probably a negative thing to admit as an artist. But I, I was very much just trying to trust my instinct and be like, this is... I want to tell this story because I find it affecting, and sure. I'm going to do it. So it was a bit more like... With myself in mind. And it was a lot more of a present show as well. Like, Underwire was recounting stories from my youth that I'd very much literally and mentally healed from. Yeah. Um, but Galah was very present because my anxiety was a big theme of it. And mm. that's something that I still carry with me. And during the development, I haven't really told, like said this, and I, I didn't say it when I performed it, like... During the development of it, about a month out, I started anxiety meds for the first time. Oh my god! <laughs> so like I sought, I sought like help for my mental health um, from the GP. Like I've done counselling in the past and stuff like that. But yeah, so that was like a whole new thing that um, I was going through. So in saying that, like the show was a lot more present, and so I just had to be a bit more instinctive with it and not so overthinky. I was just like, fuck it, like this is the story I feel like I need to tell right now. I'm going to tell it. Whereas mm. Underwire, I was like, 
will they be upset with me if I do this? Um, yeah, I don't know. Golly, sure. What, what, and was that just like a weird coincidence that you started a medication and yeah, were making... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Well, weird, yeah, weird coincidence slash like, help me. Right. I, I think I think it was like probably a result of, you know, as you know, like writing a new show, there's all the stresses that come with that and putting it up for the first time. And um, yeah, I was just ready to like prioritise myself. Right. I was being very stubborn. I was like, I have to get the show up, so I better fix my brain or do something to help it. <laughs> sure. But, uh, well, does that mean then if, if you're coming at this thing almost like dramaturgically and as a writer from this direction of like, it's for me, I'm doing it because I find it interesting. Like, I find this to be a fascinating journey for yeah. me to even undertake as a personal experiment and a personal storytelling mm. journey. Does that mean, is there something sort of like unique and whether or not it's self-serving, like you say, about mm. when you're making dramaturgical choices mm. or you're deciding what to put in the show and what not to put mm. in the show, how, how does that alchemy work? You get a director. Okay. <laughs> so my right. director, Sarah Frencham, is fucking phenomenal. Love that girl. Great. Um, director slash dramaturg, because she was very involved in the genesis of the show as she was with Underwire, so she came back on board. Um, and, yeah, so I pretty much presented to her, like, a script that was semi-finished, you know, your first draft of something. Mm. I was like, this is the shape, this is where the songs are going to go, this is what I'm going to talk about, here it is. And then we continued to unpack it and stuff, and um, eventually we scrapped things that I thought would be in it and found things that I didn't even know existed. Um, Like something, an example of that was I went home to Adelaide, I came back with all my childhood diaries that I'd never shared with anyone. Uh, Um, Yeah, uh, that I've been keeping since like 2006. God. Yeah. Up to maybe 14. And um, I was, yeah, I was six years old in 2006. That's why I say that. I thought it was clear, but it wasn't. Um, and, um, and yeah, and so we just started flicking through them. And no, like I said, no one's, I've never shared them with anyone, but we've developed a very strong relationship over the years. And, um, and we opened one page and it was just like, it was like, MJ died in front of his kid. P.S. I'm still in my room. It's like Michael when the day Michael Jackson died. Yeah. <laughs> there was just something about this entry from like 2009. We fucking wet ourselves. And we're like, there's got to be something in this. And so like, suddenly I'm on stage um, sharing all my childhood diaries with everybody. Oh my God. <laughs> um, so yeah, dramaturgically, sometimes just things come up organically like that. Like, mm-hmm. it's just like, fuck, that's, funny (laughs) so you chuck it in but that was never initially like a a thing that I thought when I was writing the show but then you flip through the diaries and you see like all these oh red flags warning signs like (laughs) aha yes there was one entry from my I think I was 16 it's like failure is not really on my to-do list oh my god (laughs) (laughs) so I was like maybe there's some room for this in the show god what an unlikable (laughs) sentence yeah (laughs) how crazy anyway God, sure. I guess I, I, I'm stuck on this question of like, at what? Just because it is interesting to me and maybe mm-hmm. no one else. How did you become a person that kept diaries? Um, I'm just very sentimental. Oh well, I genuinely believe it was probably from like getting influenced of in like early two thousands, like Cheap by the Dozen, like Hilary Duff. Like there was always like a like an oldest cool sister who had a diary, and the evil little brother would like use it as blackmail, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think as little kids, we were, like, fed that, like, a girl must have a diary. <laughs> so I think I was trying to, like, play copycat and, like, do that initially, like, when you're very young. You yeah. Know, you're just influenced by stuff. 
So uh, there are, like, some entries that I'm just like, what language is this? Like, is, <laughs> did I get this from Bratz? Like, what's going on? Um, so I think that's how it began. But then, you know, obviously you start writing shit down and you kind of don't stop. And, like, I was, um, yeah, just, like, had to document everything. I think I've always been very, like, um, yeah, just aware of situations. I just, like, want to get, I don't know, I just want to get it down. Like, I, mm. it's a bit, like, morbid, I think, like, a little bit. <laughs> just like it's morbid? My days, are, I don't know, I just need to, like, like document my life. Or maybe is this something just... you're still doing? Uh, not really. Okay. I, like, yeah, I, I should, but I, I hate that word now, but I, I really, I really would like to again. Um, but I also just want to write things down when I, like, think they're important. Like, mm. The last few years, I've written myself a letter on my birthday. Oh. Like, I don't know. That's sort of what I've done. And I have some diaries from, like, uni when, like, first relationship stuff. <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. Is this what love is? Oh, my God. I got dumped. <laughs> Same partner as before, guys. <laughs> anyway, it's all good now. But, yeah, I don't know. There's just pages of shit God. around. Sure. It's, like, three separate books, like, falling apart. But I photocopied them, so they're in they're in the internet forever now. God, this is nice. Sure. Yeah, God. Some of it's not. <laughs> like some of it's just so embarrassing. Like one of them is just so embarrassing. I can't believe I'm sharing it. But it's for my aunt. God. Well, even like so even like looking at your body of work and being a sentimental person that's kept a bunch of diaries mm. and seeing these two shows that you've done, do you plan to continue pillaging your history and your personalness and the secret stuff inside of you? Nah, I think this is just what comes with being a new uh, writer, I guess. I never really considered myself a writer, mm. and I think I mean, I'm speaking just for myself, because I think there's so many, like, fabulous writers out there who are just able to, like, grasp incredible stories that aren't their own. Um, but I think diving into my own personal stories, and it's also something to do with the way that I learned cabaret writing and the mentors and examples I had before, um was just, like, my gateway in. Like, I, I, um, very much, yeah, didn't really know how to write stories that weren't kind of, like, my own. Yeah. Um, but I, for the future, like, yeah, I see myself, I just want to continue to, like, expand and explore, and I think I'll always have, like, a focus on my life, but I, as I improve as a writer, as I, like, continue with practice, mm. um, yeah, I'd love to just make it a bit more broader and I think that's what I like attempted with Galar and another attempt was also to make it more feel more like a stand-up like like not stand-up but like comedy because mm. um Underwire coming from straight hot out of like a music theatre degree <laughs> was very theatrical I had like a couple of costume changes <laughs> I fucking Jesus so this time around I was like and like live piano and stuff this time I was like no I'm wearing one thing I'm gonna be comfortable <laughs> We're going to, like, yeah, have a bit more of a comedy format. And, yeah, I think that was achieved. So mm-hmm. I'm going to continue to find it. I don't really know. Yeah, yeah. Sure. And theatrically speaking, do you see yourself wanting to continue sort of being the only person on stage telling stories? Or do you see yourself going more conventional theatre at some point soon? Oh, I still love all of it. I still love, um, in terms of, like, my own creation and writing, I think it's going to remain solo or duo. Cool. Like, small, small stuff. I've, like, chatted with couple of friends and, and things about like, oh, wouldn't it be fun if we did this together and that together? Mm. Um, so I, I think that's on the cards eventually, collaboration. But I don't know if I like will write like a big play. Like maybe when I'm m- more experienced. Mm-hmm. But like for now, that's not sort of something in my immediate future. But I still love being part of ensemble stuff. Like this year I was like, God, I really miss acting and, and being part of something with other people. And I finally got to do a, a play this year and... Um, I was like, 
what do you mean I don't have to like decide where rehearsals are and like and like <laughs> amend the script like I could just show up and say my lines this is amazing because <laughs> um, it's been a little while since I've done something like that so Done. Mm. So this was the first run of Galar Galar. It sure and it was, is. It was like a test. It was an experiment. Yeah. It was to see what the thing was and how yeah. it felt. How, what did you learn about it? What's it going to be? I learned a lot. I've still got to seek some more feedback, but I've, um, I learned that I was able to carry my confidence from where I dropped it and I was able to like pick it up. Because on that first day, like first opening night, where before it like hadn't been seen by any eyes other than my director, mm. I was like, fuck, you know, opening night shit, oh my god, what if I forget everything? And I found myself at the same level of comfort and confidence with a brand new show that I had found by the third run of Underwire in Left Off in April, you right. know? So like that was to me like, oh wow. I should trust my skills. <laughs> like, that was a lovely lesson. Yeah. Um, but I've learned a lot about just, like, the text and the content of the show and um, how it reaches people. I think what I said earlier about that sort of self-serving, I don't really like that, but, like, <laughs> self-serving mindset, I guess, of, like, instinctive mindset when I was writing was great for reaching people who were of my demographic, but I've now reflected upon the fact that perhaps I left out the perspective of people older than me and there I'm 23 so there's a lot of people <laughs> who are older than me at the moment um who with with further experience um so I would love to sort of expand on the fu my future and like acknowledge that like my journey isn't over with these topics and like mm. these experiences especially with like mental health it's something that sort of stays with you forever um or is a continuous journey so yeah, there's like a lot that I've learned about it and there's bits that I want to trim and bits that I want to highlight and um, explore further and yeah, I just want to see where it goes. Do you have an instinctive solution to how do you incorporate older people into what you're exploring? I think it's just an acknowledgement or the way it resolves. Yeah. Um, I think I was nervous with the second show about it mirroring the structure of my first show too much. Okay. I know as a writer, you're naturally going to have like a style that you sort of come back to, but, um, but Underwire like very much ended and then didn't. Like it was just like, you know, acknowledging that like, oh, it's like the resolution you thought was going to happen didn't happen. And so I think I was a bit scared to do that again. I didn't want to like have a copy, like a repeat of what I had just created. Mm. So I resolved it. And I think while the resolution was lovely and heartwarming and like kind of satisfying to me and maybe people of my age, I think it put a bow on something that is never going to have a bow on it, really, when you're talking about mental health and perfectionism and sort of all of those little um, habits that we have as people that continue to grow and change. And yeah, I, I think it's just going to be like an acknowledgement of the fact that this journey is not over mm. and something to do with how it resolves or doesn't. Okay. Does that make sense? It does. I don't know. I've, I haven't been thinking about this for like 48 <laughs> hours since I had my debrief. I needed like two weeks off from the fringe and then I was like, all right, now we can like debrief the show and, and yeah. unpack it. So <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. No, I very much relate to Yeah. That time frame. I feel like I'm only still recovering from things and being able to reflect on some stuff. Don't Everyone's like, how was the show? I'm like, I don't know. Like, yeah, no. <laughs> I'm numb. Please don't talk to me. About, like, I'm like, thank you so much for being interested, but my God, like I just don't. <laughs> So, yeah, that's where I've been. <laughs> How has your recovery from the show been? Good. I was very, yeah, very glad I did it. Great. Like, I think I had to prove to myself that 
the first show wasn't a fluke. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, like, I'm, I'm not, I've been, my career in, as a solo artist has been all of, almost 12 months. You know, it's not very long. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I've done, this is my fourth festival. So I just kind of, and yeah, and second show. So I had to sort of just like get this one up, be stubborn, take a few new risks. And then when it was done, I was like, whoo, alrighty. Thank mm. God. I'm not going to think about Adelaide or Comfess, even though the deadlines are looming and I have to pay for shit now. <laughs> um, just for a little. I'm just going to chill for a second. Mm-hmm. And now I'm ready to get back to work. Shit, yeah. Is yeah. there anything specific about a second show? In what in terms, in terms of the experience of it, is there anything about show number two? Mm. Like, as you say, like, was it a fluke the first time? I feel time? like I didn't come. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? At the end of this show, when it was all done and dusted. Yeah. And it could have been because of the con- like the show itself and like the quality of the show itself. But I also strongly believe it's the second show syndrome where, where people talk about, like, people don't care as much. Like, it, it, I say all of this with, like, so much love and appreciation for people who did come and did care. And it's not like that. It's just like the excitement of like your debut is like no longer there. And mm-hmm. like the, and especially when like my debut was like somewhat successful as well. Mm. So like I kind of had this like thing to like live up to and, and replicate, but in a new fresh way, it's interesting. <laughs> and so like when it was all done and dusted, I was like, oh, it wasn't a dissatisfaction, mm. but it's just like, I didn't climax. <laughs> like I, I was just like, it's done. That was a great ride. I love you. That was fun. I had fun. I'm so glad you felt affected. Love ya. Thanks for coming to my work. But like, um, yeah, you know, it was like my second Melbourne Fringe. I'm like, oh yeah, I know how this goes. Like, it all sounds very grim, but I don't mean it like that. I think it's. I think there's actually like a piece that comes with it mm-hmm. because in saying that the stakes weren't as high. And so now I can look onto higher stakes. Wait, the, st- the stakes weren't as high. Yeah. Because, well, my, you, like, inside of you. Yeah, like, yeah. my first Melbourne... And I'm not saying that I wasn't scared. I was still shit scared. Yeah. But, like, my first Melbourne Fringe was the scariest thing I've ever done. Yeah, Because wow. I hadn't done it yet. Yeah. So the stakes were very, very high. And then since then I did Adelaide and I did Comfest. And then, yes, this was a new show. The stake, There were stakes involved. But... I was familiar with this ground, this territory. I knew a lot of the artists now. Like, mm. I've known you for a year or, or just a year and a half. So, like, you know, the people that I didn't know beforehand, I now knew and consider friends. Mm. So, like, in saying that, the stakes were a bit lower, mm-hmm. which, yes, in terms of my Melbourne Fringe experience, perhaps left me feeling not as fulfilled as I did last year, but this came with, like, a peace and like a sense of opportunity because now I can just be like what's next what's the next thing that's going to make me feel scared and challenged and like high stakes right and that's probably well because you're chasing that rush is that am I chasing a rush is Is that what I'm doing well is it chasing a rush or is it like or is it you just hungry to be challenged I think it's my high achiever syndrome but I I guess I am chasing a rush I never really considered it okay but I think like the adrenaline of performing and like and being scared of things I just I think I've come to find comfort in discomfort a little bit Mm -hmm. as I'm getting older and more experienced um because I'm recognizing that with discomfort comes achievement or like or some something fulfilling Mm -hmm. so I've just got my sights set on like the next things 
God, yeah, yeah. Also, like, I'm just a fucking high achiever who just wants to win. Sure. <laughs> no, that's not, that's not what I mean. But, but, you know, I'm just a relentless dick. <laughs> just like, I just suck. That's all. That's all. I just have to be good. No, no. Um, no, I just, like, I just love this craft. I just love this work. And I just want to, I just want to do it all. I just want to eat it all. I just mm. want to, like, yeah, push it. God. Well, so what's the thing that could be like really challenging to you when it would have stakes similar to your first show? The next thing is Edinburgh. Right, okay. Like, I'm actively... There's a lot of like financial stakes, which is at the forefront of the mind currently because yeah, the money does not exist. Yeah. Um, but that's the next thing. Like, we're, I mean, we're going. Mm. We're going next year. Yeah. I don't know which show I'm taking yet. Cool. Um, but before that, I've got Adelaide and Comp- Compass again. Um, but then I'm going to Edinburgh and that will be my first time. Literally in Scotland, let alone, like, yeah, at the Fringe. Fuck. Um, and I intend to perform in it. And it's so funny, because I can't wait till, like, a couple of years when I'm like, I'm a girl. <laughs> like, what is, you know, we've done Edinburgh, like, a hundred times now. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I just, yeah, I just really want to get there and mm. get the show up. Yeah. I was speaking with Sarah um, about my goals for the, for Edinburgh, as we sort of set goals for every festival. And... The local festivals look a bit like our goals look a bit like exceed this number of tickets, get this sort of review, perhaps a, like a, an award nom or something like that. My goals for Edinburgh are just like get there <laughs> and do a show. Right. And anything else that comes with that is a bonus. Mm. But like, yeah, I just want to get there. And that was my goal for Melbourne Fringe get there and do a show. <laughs> and then all this other good stuff came from it. So, <laughs> yeah. You know, God, that's steps. so nice. I've never heard of a person say that's really smart that you and Sarah come up with that, those lists of goals they for a show. They are fabulous. I like Sarah's my backbone. Like oh. Sarah's what makes like this insecure little bird um, actually get the her shit up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> she just yeah. Without being like, she's not like reassuring. This is just like a Sarah um, kiss kiss ass fest now. But like, nah, she's not like. Um, when I brought her on board, we weren't the clo- like the closest of friends yet. We on board in- for Underwire. Yes, yeah. we, are, we were years apart in uni, one year apart, and we weren't like great friends. We were like acquaintances, probably. And then, um, yeah, I just said, look, I need someone who's going to challenge me and push me outside my comfort zone, but also, you know, take my work like and and do this version of it, like not try and change it and stuff like that. And mm. they were like the perfect choice for that because she she just loves directing and she's great at it and so yeah she and now after a year of being together in this creative way she knows all my little insecurities and all the little things that she can tell oh she needs a little bit of reassurance or she needs to be pushed out like pushed this way or that way mm. so yeah we've found it together it's all very much my work and my writing but sure. um but she's very much been there doing doing her job good. Oh, is there an example? Just because this sounds like such a beautiful working relationship, yeah. is there an example of one of those like potentially tiny moments where you saw that Sarah saw something of you, and mm. it was like, oh wow, this person kind of gets me as an artist. Um. Yeah. I just. I think like the big thing was like yeah that like diaries moment where we're all sitting down and having a big laugh. But I think just in general, it's more about what she doesn't say. Because she's just very good at separating the personal and the professional. Like, now we have this lovely personal relationship. Mm. But um, it's just, they're really good at, like, um, knowing what needs to be said at the time and what doesn't. Mm. And they also have the, the same level of professionalism and respect for the craft as I do. So if I send them an email 
she'll reply, you know, in the same manner, in a prompt fashion. You know what I mean? And it's so yeah. small. But it's like when you're collaborating with someone who's an emerging artist, these are skills, like, you learn and, and not always, um, you know, sometimes people have diff- different ways of working and, the, and it clashes. And we're two very different people. But our the way we go about this work is very, very similar. So in that like she she keeps her deadlines she mm. she shows up on time like but we also have a laugh and we're like yeah so i think that just works it's like a nice little chemistry um yeah so i guess to sidestep quickly um of course as i said you are the last of this series of like post fringe conversations that That's i'm so having special. with people so special oh my god what a way to close it out <laughs> wow. um and and by virtue of that i've sort of like accumulated a few questions sort of based on the conversations that i've had with other artists oh, yeah. during this series um, and yeah, so this like line of sort of like cannonball questions is kind of the culmination of those conversations. All right. Um, so I'll just like lob them at you and just see what you're... Lob your... them cannons, baby. Yeah, okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> um, ba, ba, ba. where should we start? Okay. Um, <laughs> Elizabeth Brennan, when I was speaking to her, um, painted this beautiful picture of her first Sydney Fringe experience mm. of being one of like a collection of people <laughs> being like set up in almost like little tent gazebos in a car park and everyone's <laughs> shows bleeding together sonically and it yeah. becoming a moment of like hoping that your show pulls focus for the audience that's you know cordoned off with your show yeah. and yeah um, but yeah do you have a like a, a a memorable sort of like as you say you're a nostalgic person yeah. an instance of like to whatever extent your theatre career exists in your head, you know, whatever you consider to be within the boundaries of yeah. your theatrical life. Do you have, like, a shonky, gross, little, beautiful experience I from I it? Wouldn't, I wouldn't even call it that beautiful. But yeah. last year in August, I was doing my friend's original play, This Is Life. Did you see that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah you, you talked about it. Thank yeah. you. No, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, anyway, so you, so, you know, it was at um, Jason Coleman's Ministry of Dance, if anyone's been there, in their little theatre space, which is really cool, like, big black room. It was fucking freezing because we had no fucking heating. It was very, very cold. Um, and the show was, like, Euphoria-esque, I keep saying Summer Heights High, but what's that new? Heartbreak High, you know that one? Heartbreak, I forget. Heartbreak High-esque, like, troubled teens, a little bit campy, like, a slightly dark comedy vibe. Hmm. That was the vibe of the show. And it started, like, pretty, we, we prefer to start it on quite a sincere and serious note. Um, and so we're waiting to go up, the house is packed, we're, and all day next door there'd been auditions for Mary Poppins. Great. Specifically, okay. the kids in Mary Poppins. Oh, annoying. Yeah, but you know, whatever. You gotta do what they got. Yeah, fucking annoying. It was fine. Oh, I was annoyed by the children. I guess oh, that Oh, okay, yeah. It. Children <laughs> theatre. Who needs them? Anyway. So, like, you know, in the hours prior to the show, we were just kind of like, oh, God, I hope they're, like, finished soon. Because <laughs> um, we have hired the space. Um, uh, that's fine. And so, all these kids next door, let's go fly a kite, you know, all day, every day. It was, like, fine. <laughs> Um, but then we're waiting to start the show. We're meant to start, and these kids are still going, and the noise bleed, you can hear it. Mm. Um, and we're about to start this play, yes. like this very <laughs> slightly serious play. <laughs> um, and meanwhile, next door, there's fucking kids singing about kites and shit. Yeah. So we waited 15 minutes, then we, I think we waited 20 minutes, and our audience is sitting in this freezing room, and we just got to the point, like we are, like we spoke to them uh, uh, to no avail. Yeah. Um, and it got to the point where we just had to start the show while these children sang, Let's Go Fly a Kite. Oh. And the beginning, do you remember how the show opened? Was it suicide? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Julia, um, um, fucking Nim, what was her name? Yeah. The lead character jumps from a, in a really funny way, <laughs> like, that, like jump, jumps from a balcony at a party. And everyone's like, oh my God, I tried to kill them. Um, and meanwhile, these kids are singing, <laughs> Mary 
Robbins. Oh. That sucked ass. But um, <laughs> but they finished, I think, about, like, I don't know, 20 minutes into the show. So oh, it wasn't okay. that distracting. And I think that was the night we filmed it as well. <laughs> <laughs> so that's forever immortalised. <laughs> oh, anyway, God. That's one. Jesus. Yeah, no, we did a play a few years ago in the Bluestone Church. Oh, yeah. And that was back before they built that complex, like, the complex. Yeah, where Spring Awakening With the was. kids. With the the ki- kids are next door. Is that what you're talking well, about? Well, the kids are next door, but also they used to have a marching band that would rehearse <gasps> next to the church. <laughs> and the building next to the church didn't have, like, air conditioning, so they'd have to leave the doors oh, open so there could be airflow. So throughout this entire, like, play about incest, there was just, like, <gasps> most of the night felt like... When Yes. I feel like this is undercutting the drama somewhat. That's so embarrassing. So that was our kite-flying children. I hate that. Um, <laughs> that for you. Um, Sebastiano Pitrizzello mm-hmm. asks this question. He may have asked it of you before. Mm-hmm. He asks people to describe life in an image. Oh my god, Seb. Right? <laughs> okay. Because he thinks it reveals a lot about the person that he's speaking oh, to. Fuck. How would you, in this moment, describe life as an image? <laughs> what a question. Right. Um, for me, it would be very green and lush and like lots of nature. Mm-hmm. And like a body of water. These are the things for me that make me feel like I'm living. I really have learned recently, especially being in Melbourne in like the freezing Melbourne winters, I just love being outdoors. I'm a summer gal. Mm. So like just like natural beauty to me is like what life is about. Just like bodies of water and sky Mm. and just things existing and being there. I think that's what life is God, to me. That's super what nice. Philosophical question for the theatre podcast. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Seb. Love that. <laughs> um, Stelios Ioannidis, when talking about his passion for acting, brought up the idea of legacy. Mm. And do you, oh, I totally. imagine, looking forwards, or even where you are right now, is there something that you want your work as an artist to leave behind you? Yeah, I'm all about this. Like, maybe it's a very self-centered... I don't know if it's self-centered or just, like, very... Probably a bit of both. Like, very just sentimental and, like... There's something very sad about thinking about, like, legacy. And it's, like, part of the reason why I, like, wrote everything down. Like, all my diaries and stuff. Mm. But I... And, like, documenting things. Um, But I... But I also, like, love it. Like, it, it fills me with warmth. Like, I think it would make me sadder not to document those things. Like, I think I document things with the knowledge that, like, one day I won't be here. Mm. But, um... But that doesn't... I, I think I'm just trying to write everything down so I just feel like I've... It's there, you know? And if someone finds it, then that's fine. I'm the kind of person that's like, if I die, go through my phone. I don't care. Like, <laughs> go find it. Like, I, like... Yeah, there'll be embarrassing shit on there. Mm. I haven't done anything, like, criminal. Yeah. So, like, oh, like, really roasted my friends t- terribly. Maybe a little <laughs> bit. But, like, I don't care. Like, go find out everything about me. Like, go find out about... I don't know. Like, I don't think I'm particularly interesting. I just, like... I don't know. I just love these sorts of conversations and, like, the nuance of, like, the human experience. I think that's what draws us to acting and stuff like that. So I think, yeah, if people could know all the layers about me and ultimately if my work as an artist and my legacy as an artist, I would love to be remembered as, like, someone who affected people and, like, was offered something constructive and was at least a kind person. Like, mm. was funny and and <laughs> took risks, which is something I'm working towards. Sure, yeah. But um, but like if Underwire was my legacy, and Galar, like that would be that would make me very happy to know oh. that like I affected some of those people when I was seeking that when I was young. 
Does, is that enough? Is that cool? That's, is that enough? <laughs> is that that's enough? super lovely. No, and too, it must that beautiful moment of realising that you affected that father's relationship with his daughter with mm. Underwire. It's like to know that you've already started building this legacy in such a tangible, legitimate way. Mm. That, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> God, that's nice. Um, Conk, who I believe you're relatively familiar with. Yep. Yep. <laughs> brought, <laughs> brought up um, wanting to be uh, enjoying his most recent work. Um, yeah, Frequent Shit Live. Frequent Shit Live because of... Um, wanting to work in the realm of like accidents and bad choices and bad theatre and things being shit but him also getting to utilise his skill set in working with that shit yeah. um, is there a memorable moment for you of watching theatre and maybe uh, as much as I hate this term is bad theatre or yeah. like shit theatre or yeah. theatre full of mistakes that sticks with you in a way that you kind of treasure yes yes I just want to say it in a way, because I know a friend that I don't want to, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to name names. Um, yeah, totally. I had a friend, and you've said the word bad theatre, so I'm not calling it bad theatre. No, no, that's me. Um, but I had have a friend who did a show, um, and it, I could just tell, because I had created a show by then, like, how this development process must have gone for that person, yeah. and like... Basically, it was a hybrid. It was like a 45-minute show yeah. in like a 60-minute slot. Okay. And there was like a 20-minute show at the top of it and then like a 25-minute show at the end. But it was meant to be like one piece. And I could tell what had happened was <laughs> they tried to write a show and only had like 20 minutes of stuff. Yeah. And that was really good and interesting. And then they tacked on this bit at the end which was also really good and interesting. Uh-huh. Just had nothing to do with each other. <laughs> to fill a 45 minute of a 60. Oh, you know what I mean? Sure, yeah. I can't remember which order the things came in. Um, but they just kind of had nothing to do with each other. One was like film noir half. The yeah. other half was magic. Oh. So like very... Like, like magician? Like, yes. Okay. So I don't remember which order they came in. Okay. But that's what it was. Yeah. And it was more advertised as the noir part. Okay. Um... It was like an audience of like six of us. Mm-hmm. There was one like very well-known and respected comedian in the room as well who we loved. And the performer just managed to like, I don't know what the fucking show was. I didn't under, like, I didn't know what they were trying to say, but I just loved it. Like I, <laughs> I had no, like I had, and not even like in a campy, like so bad it's good way. Yeah. In like a genuine, like, Okay, these two things don't make sense or go together, really. Mm. But, like, the way you're doing it is skillful and, like, impressive and still really entertaining. Yeah. I'm not really sure why, but I'm still really engrossed in it. And there's six of us in this audience. And the comedian who, like, also had a background in magic got up and, like, got involved with the magic tricks and was so, like, generous and and genuinely loving it. And, like, we it created such, like, a lovely space and I like I weirdly trusted the performer the whole time even though I could tell they didn't really trust themselves Mm. because I know they had just scraped together this show but (laughs) what I really respected about it was like they did it Mm. they did the show this like stubbornness I imagine three days prior to opening they didn't have a show like that's what I think was going on right and maybe there was a lot of disorganization there I don't know what happened with like their relationships with other creatives. I don't know if anything, you know, got people got pissy or whatever. But, like, ultimately what I saw on that night was a very skilled performer doing something that perhaps wasn't very well crafted, but, like, doing it in a very entertaining way that still made it enjoyable 
and yeah, I was just like, wow. And they did it. They did it. It was like their first show, and I've been there, and I know how fucking hard that is. So like, I, mad props. Is this person still making work? Um, I they haven't made work since that, but I they're definitely still active in like cool creation and artistry and stuff. Oh, great! Because to have exercised all the skill sets that it sounds like they like that situation necessitated, I would hope so. Yeah, that's oh, yeah. They're, they're so entertaining and worthy of and castable and all the good stuff. Um, just it, and everyone has their strengths. Like my strengths actually more lie in the admin part of of <laughs> performing, which is like. You never hear a performer say ever. No. No. So I just recognize that this person maybe just lacked skills in like they didn't maybe they didn't get a director or a dramaturg or like maybe they just didn't understand the timeline of like putting up a show and how quickly things need to be filled or or like underestimated how much of the show they actually had. You know, yeah. like working out your <laughs> runtime and stuff. That's a whole other. These are skills that you build with experience. Mm. But I admired as they still got up and did it and yeah. didn't apologize for it either. Oh. They got up and like did it wholeheartedly. To the point where I could really enjoy what they had made. Right. Even though it wasn't, didn't feel finished. <laughs> oh. But like, yeah, that was so cool. I really liked that. Oh my God. Great. Yeah. Um, is there a depiction of the theatre making process on film or television that just exists with you? Is there like a mm. version of it that was like, oh. Fuck, that's such a good question. I'm sure subconsciously I am very heavily influenced by things and I... I don't quite realise it. I have always been like a behind the scenes girly. Like I can't think of anything specific. Mm. But even when I was younger, like very young, and DVDs were a thing. Yeah. I was always watching the behind the scenes like all the time. And it would really annoy my sister because she'd be like, can't I just watch the fucking movie? And I'd be like, no, like I need to see this blooper and like how they did this and that. So like I just have like memories of kind of unpe- like being very interested in like uh, something for some reason like the Princess Diaries is really sticking out to me like right. the, the behind the scenes of that yeah <laughs> and just like watching them all interact and like and now I look at it as an adult and I'm like okay this is very like fabricated and they, they're very much trying to like make us view the process as a certain thing like it's not maybe the authentic process but um I just like oh my god why is my life always come back to Julie Andrews um uh. but like like watching like Julie Andrews do like 20 takes of her bow after she like flies down a slide on a mattress that's very specific yeah. but like she did and like just i don't know just like what like having it all stripped away like yeah i just i love recognizing that like no matter what stage you're at in your career we're all sort of we all sort of do things the same way perhaps sometimes with more skill and finesse mm-hmm. but like ultimately we're all doing multiple takes we're all we're all cutting shit we're all <laughs> exploring and rewriting um I saw, like, Michelle Brazier get up, who I, like, admire and, and, and really um, respect, and I saw the live taping of her Paramount show. Yeah. And there's a moment where she was just cabaret artist and she's doing her bit, and um, I think it was quite an emotional part of the show where she was talking about something quite personal, and I've seen that show twice before with no stops because it was live and all of that, and she's at, like, Malt House with, like, lots of you know, notable people watching her and a full malt house. So, like, quite a bit of pressure and she's being filmed for Paramount. Mm. And for the first time, I saw her go to say something and she's like, I'm a really good writer and I really love this part and I fucked that up, so I'm going to do it again. Hmm. And I was sitting in the front row and um, she went to do it again and she fucked it again. And then she went to do it again and she fucked it again and it got to the point where, like, she had to, like, take a breather and 
that for me as like an emerging artist, like seeing the process, seeing the like, we all do that. Like if it wasn't being filmed, I know she wouldn't have stopped. Mm. But this was being immortalized forever, and it was a very personal moment. So she was like, "Fuck it, I'm gonna get this right." Yeah. And I admired it for two reasons. I admired it because she was vulnerable enough to do that and like show us that like we're not perfect. We forget lines. We fuck things up. But I also admired it because she was stubborn enough in her own writing and respected her own text enough mm. to be like, I'm going to get this right. That stuck with me. And I think that influenced perhaps my stubbornness or my um, respect for my own text, I think. Like, it gave me permission to be like, no, I love what I wrote here. Mm. Like, I, I've never been very good at being... Um, celebrating myself I guess <laughs> so I'm trying to unlearn, I'm trying to get better at that okay so yeah I think that really stuck with me too right Makes it was sense. so scary I was like <gasps> but like um because we were all like holding our breath in that moment but she just had it like she just got it together eventually and it was brilliant god yeah. okay well coming at that the, the thing you just said at the end of of the way that that kind of moment affected you and your desire to be more celebratory of yourself. Mm. Like, a, a thing that I've found, found, like, useful, especially in, like, the two shows that I just, like, co-directed, mm. it was useful to sort of, like, when talking to actors about their characters, interrogating what it, what's something that the character that you're playing loves about themselves. And I guess that's just mm. me roundaboutly getting to an opportunity to ask you, Gemma, like, what's a quality of yours that you really love? God. First of all, I've never been asked that question as an actor, which is a really interesting one, and I'd love to consider that... In the future. Mm, I find it helpful, um, yeah. And that's me avoiding your question. Yeah, well... Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's something I really enjoy about myself? Um, I want to say, like, my humour. Because I am a very dramatic person and I get cranky. I'm a very emotional person. Like, I get cranky, I get sad. Like, sometimes I don't find the glass half full. Like, I wouldn't say I'm that guy. Mm-hmm. I'm not, like, endlessly optimistic. But I... Ultimately, I, I will always find the humor in something or, yeah, like, I don't know. I just I just like to de-escalate other people's sorrow and stuff. I think I'm not very good at doing it for myself. Mm. But, like, if someone else is having a hard time or something or needs something from me, obviously I'll try and help them in a constructive way. But I think I bring humor to it quickly mm. and try to, like... Um, yeah, just, like, yeah, de-escalate the, the stakes of, like, what they're experiencing without diminishing it, but just sort of, like, to ground them or to, like, remind them that, like, there is another option, <laughs> you know? Um, I think that's something I like about myself. Um, I spoke to Stelios Ioannidis, who played Pinocchio in the Pinocchio that we did. Mm. <laughs> um, and, yeah, because of the subject matter of that work, I wanted to talk to him about his relationship with beauty. And I was curious, too, about yours. Mmm. Beauty. Um, I guess, you know, you can look at it lots of different ways, like physical human beauty and, like, I guess beauty in nature. I find a lot of beauty in nature, especially, like, a nice blue sky. That's my, that's my thing. I love yeah. a good blue sky. <laughs> um... But in terms of myself, it's interesting right now. I'm, um, I was, when I was younger, I was part of that group that I was talking about. The toxic you know, year the, 11s. The toxic girlies. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was an overdeveloped 16 year old with huge bazongas and quite, I don't want to say like, I wasn't like medically <laughs> badly thin, but like I was like, I was, I was 
proportionally, like, quite, in quotes, attractive. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, just big tits, young, <laughs> and no beer belly yet. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> beer belly, like, I drink belly. Cider belly. Mm. Um, but, yeah, so, like, I was looked at a lot, like, for my for my looks. I had, like, long, straight hair. And having big boobs, I had two options. I could hide and wear big tops, which ultimately made me look larger than I was, which wasn't great for my self-esteem at that age. Mm. Or I could embrace it, which just meant sexualizing myself because that's what we associate with breasts. Not that I wanted... I wasn't, like, sexualizing myself in, like, I just, you know... I don't like the word slut, but I just became and like, you know, I was like, fuck it, I'm just gonna like, fuck everyone. Like, no, I was still very much myself, but like, I embraced like the tight tops and the fact that I, I was gonna have cleavage in this and I was just gonna have to deal with that. And then of course I was objectified for that. Mm. Um, and that's something I unpack in Underwire. But yeah, my beauty, I guess, like, wasn't something that I loved when I was younger. Yeah, it was great to like look cute and all that, but like, I, I was being sexualized and objectified far too young. Mm. And then when I turned 18, it kind of stopped. And that taught me something about society. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, and now, as I'm in my 20s and I cut all my hair and I'm definitely in like a f- few double digits kilos heavier than I was when I was 16, um, as you are when you grow, I am getting noticed less and less and I don't mind it. Like, it's just like, I'm dressing for myself. And I have a partner who loves me and would take me at any, any type or size or whatever I am or whatever I want to wear. He's very chill like that. Mm. So, like, I don't dress for him even, really. Like, I, so it's, I've had, it's, yeah, I'm just, like, dressing for myself and kind of appearing how I am. And, like, a lot of the time, I still have a lot of fucking insecurities. I, I do a lot of things that I shouldn't be <laughs> doing out on the street, and I'm very comparative. But I, um, yeah, realising that I shouldn't be comparing myself to my 16-year-old self anymore. Like, I'm not 16. I'm mm. 23. That's gross. <laughs> like, I, but it's because I've been conditioned to recognise that as, like, a valuable mm. time in my life, or at least I was valuable then by the way that I looked. Yeah. Very grim, but that's the experience, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, God. And as you so rightly say, like, the way that you unpacked so much of that in Underwire was just, like, a stunning thing to witness. As an Aww. audience member, it was so, you know, potently and evocatively and well-constructedly done. Thanks. Yeah, no, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, springing off the conversation with Sebastiano, mm. he said some wonderful things about his experience with romantic love, especially lately. Yeah. And I wonder if there's even just, like, one thing that you personally know to be true about romantic love (laughs) um yeah so many things i just think i just think your partner has to make you laugh like Mm -hmm. even if you're not funny people (laughs) because if they make you laugh they make you smile right Mm. it's like what's the point of not smiling with someone sure like you can be two you can be two of the darkest like moody people who don't like comedy and are into docos and science. <laughs> That's my idea of the opposite of me. <laughs> but um, but they have to make you laugh, right? Or, or yeah, yeah. I don't want to sit here and say your relationship is not going to work if your partner doesn't make you laugh. Mm. But like for me in our relationship, that's like got to be the number one thing. 
for us. Yeah. Sometimes he doesn't make me laugh. Sometimes he makes me fucking annoyed. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but it's not always that funny. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think I know that to be true about mm. romantic love. Lovely. Sure. And I guess I'll, I'll close on these. Sort of like, it's a sort of like a two-pronged question, but it comes from the, the very sort of like long and you keep to speaking of grimness. And I think there is so much grimness in the, this <laughs> life of the art that we've decided yeah. upon. And yeah, just me and Elizabeth had a very long sort of like quite morose conversation about the sacrifices required of a life in the arts. And it's like, what do you see in terms of like, are there sacrifices you're expecting to have to make in wanting to pursue a life in the yeah. arts? And are you ready to make those sacrifices? Yeah. Money is a big one. Yeah. Huge. Um, as I'm sure you understand, <laughs> the current cost of living crisis, but also just that on top of like, okay, yeah, I finally got a bit of money. That's going to go for this registration fee and this like, I'm constantly investing in myself financially. So like, that's a big sacrifice. Mm. Um, like I could just turn around and get a full-time job and start to save, but I'm not, which is very against the high achiever instincts that I have. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but, yeah, I'm sacrificing, like, being with my family because the opportunity is here. My family is in South Australia, so, like, that is a sacrifice, like, very much so. Um, relationships, you know, like, not being able to see my sister every day and, like, stuff like that. Like, that's that was a big one. Um, and there was definitely... I guess I'm, it's my own choice, but I'm, I am sacrificing a bit of my anonymity and like mm. my I, I would never share anything that I wasn't like ready to share I don't think but I find I especially with Galar discovered that I'm willing to share a lot more than I perhaps normally would be for my art mm. like I feel like if someone walked up to me on the street or like just a friend at a party and was like oh this thing that you said in your show but like out of context I'd yeah. be like why do you know that about me like yeah, yeah. but like ooh but like but now I'm like oh yeah I told hundreds of people <laughs> like on stage in song <laughs> like you know like so I think I forget like I definitely have become and I don't know if it's healthy or not but like I've, I've become slightly detached from some of the stories that I've told about myself because when you rinse and repeat something over and over and your personal experiences that affected you greatly become a script mm. like there is a level of detachment there. And in some senses, like, it's been a healing thing because, like, it's it's lowered the stakes of, like, a few memories. And in other, thing, it, other ways, it's been like, am I remembering that right? Or is that the theatrical <laughs> version of, like, what I'm saying? So, yeah, it's kind of a bit mind-boggling. And, and I think that's a sacrifice, too, to, like, yeah. sacrifice your, not sense of self, but, like, you know... <laughs> memory <laughs> like yeah, some yeah, of my yeah. memories like, yeah and somehow almost like the sacredness of what it is that you're sacred yeah totally yeah mm. yeah i think next time i don't have any regrets of like anything that i've shared in this show um mm -hmm. but i think from here especially because i've shared like basically everything my 23 years has to offer <laughs> um yeah i'm gonna consider next time like do i want this to just be for me like mm. am i gonna just hold on to this one yeah yeah God, that's fascinating. Yeah, I've had similar thoughts as well, and I don't know where I sit on it, but it's like, one of the things that it makes me think about is like, I wonder, because I too, I suppose, I certainly feel like I've shared a lot on stage mm. and in my work and stuff. Mm, you, yeah, um, your plays are very personal. A lot of the time, yeah. Seen, yeah. Um, yes, and having the concern, and maybe it's, because some of what you said was sort of suggest that this fear of mine is a bit invalid and not real, maybe, but the, the concern of like, I've given so much, I've told so much, like I've literally been on stage sharing things that I had never intended to tell anybody about myself that were just like facts about me. And it's like, I wonder, and I guess I have this small fear of like getting to a point in the future where I wish I hadn't done that with some of the things mm -hmm. that 
I confessed or admitted to, mm. I guess. And I don't know where that would come from. I think maybe that's me applying the rules of life to theatricality or to artistry or something, I suppose. Because I've certainly, as I'm sure a lot of us have, of like sharing a part of ourselves, whether or not it's like a fact or a physical experience or a mm. part of ourselves, it, almost in, in like it, as a show of intimacy to a person. Mm-hmm. And then down the line, that relationship changing and wishing that you had not been Yeah, somewhere. it's like, oh, they saw this part of my body. Or like, oh, yeah, or they know this about my childhood. Yeah. Yes. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And then coming to a point where it's like, God, I wish I could suck that knowledge out of their brain. Right. And I guess, I yeah, maybe I'm just like misapplying that trauma wisdom. I don't think it's misapplying it at all. I mean, if anything, you're telling strangers as well, like when you're on stage. Well, you're comparing it to, and at least you knew that person. Like, yeah. there's this vulnerability going on here. Yeah, totally. Um, I think it's a very valid concern. And I haven't really considered, because my work hasn't really been, like, recorded and published yet. Like, mm. whenever I do a podcast is where I think about that, because this is, like, really my first sort of recorded and distributed thoughts. So, mm. like, on stage, I, I feel like I can kind of get away with it, because I'm like, oh, well, if they saw that one, then they saw that one, and whatever there's no like evidence that that happened um <laughs> but as my career progresses and i hope s- continues to succeed mm. there will be documentation there will be video there will be recordings yeah so I and more it, and more collective opinions totally yeah. um so i think that's something that i like have maybe blissfully remained ignorant of mm. but i know is looming mm-hmm. um yeah <laughs> i had a really weird experience with a quote-unquote, like, fan. (laughs) Like, just, yeah, this loss of anonymity. I was coming home from a party, and, um, like, I was... It was, like, a 30th, so I was, like, kind of dressed nicely, but I was really drunk, and we are at Flinders, and Connor and I were just grabbing some food, and and I was probably just drunkenly, like, babbling, and then we got on the train and went home. Mm. And um, I got an Instagram message from someone that I knew had been following me for some time, but I have no idea who they are. They just see my work. Mm. Um, and they were like, what did you get tonight from the place I was? Yeah. Like, so they had seen me at the station, sort like, didn't come up to me, but like saw me and then was like, basically doxed me. was like, Mm. I knew you were here. And no, they didn't message me. They commented it. That's right. Oh my God. On an older post that I had posted. So like five days ago, I'd posted something and they went back to my most recent post and they commented it. So not only did they say, I saw you, but they also told everyone else where I was. Yes. My (laughs) 1,200 followers, which I was saying that trying to make it sound like it wasn't very much, but (laughs) in hindsight, 1,000 people is kind of a lot. So, um, so yeah, that made me feel very, very uncomfortable. Mm. Um, and I, and also like, then my brain was quickly like, well, thank God Connor was there. I, I was not sober. I get the train all the time from work. Did they see what train I got on? Did they get on our train? Mm. Did they follow us home? Like, yeah. like you know, totally blowing it out of proportion for what it was, which probably was just uh, someone who knows my work being like, I saw you today. But um, but quickly, like, all this happened. And, and I'm like, fuck, I'm like a nobody as well. Like, I'm literally nobody. <laughs> and this has already started. Like, yes. what am I And those gonna... worst case scenarios you're describing happen all the time. I literally, yeah. 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 Don't follow me home. But like, I'm <laughs> like, I am, um, yeah, I go, yeah, I use the public transport system very often. So mm. it's like, yeah, so that was just a bit like, fuck, like, am I going to have to consider this stuff now? And like, even sometimes when I get to the station, like, I'm just like looking around like, ooh, is that person around? Mm. They would be like creepy or threatening but if it had an undertone of like i saw you i would have preferred they just came up to me and 
said like, hey, I know who you are, I really love your work. I would have like taken that and been like, yeah, cool, yeah. thanks. Or like, you know, said whatever they wanted to say to me. They didn't have to tell me they like my work. But like, <laughs> at least had a chat and be like, hello. And, and, and I saw them in person because instead I was like, someone was watching me yeah. and decided to tell me that on Instagram. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, that's the sacrifice. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Fuck. Christ. Um, sure, well, I guess the opposite of that, I guess, sort of, to mm. simplify. Um, I'm just curious about what is it whether or not it's a thing inside of you or a thing that you're striving for that is going to keep you in this industry. Because, of course, as we all know, it's one that is constantly trying to throw you out of it. Yeah. It's just like... I don't know if it's anything specific that I can I- explain. It's just like, this is what I'm me- I have to do. Like, yeah. I just have to do it. Like, it's just this mentality. And it's not that, like, I'm going to push myself to do it un- to the point where I'm not enjoying it anymore. But, like, it's something that's brought me joy since I was very, very young. Like, Mm. being 12 years old and remembering, like, the first feelings of having warm, like, stage light on your face Mm. and, like, what that feels like. Mm. And, like, nothing really brings me as much joy as, like, walking out onto a stage, whether there's an audience there or not. It's just, like, that room. Mm. Um, I just, like... I think... Honestly, I think, like, it's... I'm, I'm constantly chasing, I think we all do to an extent, like chasing nostalgia and like things that brought us joy as a kid. Hmm. And perhaps this is just something that I haven't had to let go of yet. Right. You know what I mean? Like I just got to keep doing this. There's hmm. certain things when you do when you're a kid that you, you're not allowed to do anymore or it's not going to be the same. But like this, I just got to keep doing it and it got to become more challenging and, and you get more recognition or, or like more like, um, I don't know, just more like, it just feels more like real. Like it's almost like something like if you get to, if you, cause it's so unlikely, if you get to continue to do this into adulthood, it's almost like something to be um, celebrated rather than like you're still doing this childish thing. But ultimately I'm just still this child playing <laughs> pretend cause, I, <laughs> cause it's so much fun. And like, I just, I just love being on stage so much. Mm. Really do. And storytelling and just like shit, like unpacking the human experience. And yeah, I don't know. It's just, like, inherently, like, something I have to do. Mm. Yeah. That's great. That makes sense. That's what that keeps ma- me going. Yeah, yeah. That's great. <laughs> and certainly it, too, like, adds, I don't know, even additional beauty to the thing of, like, galah galah being something kind of written for your younger self. Mm. Like, the idea, too, of that being the person in whom this passion was kind of born mm. and that still being a thing that you're honouring today. That's super stunning. Totally. Yeah. I think, like, you know... Some performers are always little performers. Like, you know, mm-hmm. little kids, sometimes they're drawn to music and stuff. But that can fizzle for some people. Um, but not me, baby. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be relentless. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, maybe I'm just a bit stubborn as well. Yeah, no, it sounds it. Yeah. But it's, <laughs> it seems like it's serving you, though, which yeah. is great. Yeah. Trying. Okay, well, yeah, well... It's been so wonderful getting to sort of like, I don't know, talk to you for this, this our long... longest unbroken conversation. Yeah. Like, like yelling at each other over a party or something like yeah. that. Oh, no, which I feel super fortunate for. Yeah, no, thank you so much for making the time to be here and talk thank to me you. about all of these things that, that, I don't know, matter a lot to at least the two of us. So, totally. yeah. Um, yeah, no. Oh, my God. Yeah. Thank you, Gemma, for being here. Of and course, yeah, Thanks for having me. Can't you wait make to it can... so easy. Oh, oh, that's very lovely. <laughs> no. And yeah, can't wait to have many, many more conversations with you and see the rest of what you do with this career you're having. It's so exciting. Yes. 
Yeah. And you. Yeah, my sure. Love. <laughs> of course. Um, uh, and thank you for being here, sweet, sweet listener. Um, as usual, we may already disagree with everything we just said. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do already. <laughs> um, and friends don't let friends become theatre critics. Mm. Um, yeah, thank you again, Gemma, for being here. This has been such bliss. Thank you. So, thank you. <laughs>